Morning, Christ Church. Uh, before we get into the sermon, uh, which is the last sermon of a series that we're doing on becoming builders of unity, before we get into that, I want to uh, just make a few comments on a personal note. Um, and then we're going to look back over the series so far and then come up to today to the final uh, sermon uh, in that series. So first of all, personal note, last night I was telling Christine uh, how happy it makes me just to see all of you here. I just had this moment where I was thinking about the past couple of months, and I mean, every Sunday, most Sundays, each service is just, just full. And um, the fact that we're all we're here and we're together in person and, and how that, after the pandemic, um, I couldn't take that for granted. None of us knew what this would do. And church leaders everywhere, myself included, wondered what would be the long-term impact of shutting down in-person worship for a stretch. And then we were 100% online on live streaming, like most churches. And then that period of time where we began to come back in smaller numbers, the social distance, and we'd have about 75 or so at a time. And then gradually getting to the place now where it's, it's like it was before the pandemic. Um, but during that time, I just, I wondered, and, I, and I, at times even worried, what is this doing? What's this doing to us? What's this doing to the church? Are we going to get too used to... Um, doing church online? Are we going to ha- see everybody come back in full force? And the answer is yes, you have come back in full force. And that just makes me so happy that you came back to look in each other's eyes and have a conversation in between services to linger after a service and see people that you don't get to connect with perhaps during the week or to catch a cup of coffee beforehand or go to lunch with a, a friend or a family uh, you came back in order to come to the table of our Lord and share a meal, a holy meal as the family of God, the bread and the wine uh, each Sunday together. You came back to walk three blocks from the place you finally found a park <laughs> and, um, and then make your way in here in good cheer and, um, and ready to worship. You came back to serve on ministry teams, to take up the towel of service, to give your tithes, to serve your fellow parishioners, to share your smile. You came back for all of this, and, and I just have this poignant kind of sense, just last night, uh, telling Christine about how much joy that gives me. So thank you for coming back. And uh, we do still do the live stream, some of you are with us now, and uh, we have a, a dozen or two, sometimes just a, a few dozen people who aren't able to come to church, and they're either homebound or sick, some people who are out of town are traveling, and, um, and, so, and, and it's really a ministry to serve them. And so we're glad you're able to join us if you're not able to make it to church. And we're glad that you who are able are back in person with us. All right, second thing, on a personal note. Um, many of you were here five years ago, uh, this April, when my wife Christine was in a tragic accident. Um, it was a near-fatal accident. Um, some of you have joined more recently in the past few years and weren't part of that story with us as a congregation or with us as a family. Um, her life hung in the balance for a few days, uh, un- uncertain whether she was going to make it, and she did, and then she was in ICU for a couple weeks. She was hospitalized for six weeks, came home and was in active rehab uh, for another year in recovery, and, um, and to this day lives with uh, permanent life-altering injuries including traumatic brain injury. And um, our whole family is still learning to understand and live with all the implications 
of that. And there's no way to give you a clear picture of it. I wish I could. And in fact, I'm not sure we have a clear picture of it, even to this day, of all the ripples and implications and ways it's affected us. And then some things will be clearer in retrospect. And some things are clearer as we look back on those years. But we're learning. Uh, We're still learning and we're growing in it. Um, All this to say, Christine was asked to be on a a podcast for an organization that we love and she serves on the board of this. And this is, she doesn't do a lot of this. It's not like her thing, her gig, whatever, but but she was asked to be on this podcast and share some of of her reflections. And I listened to to the episode recently and I was completely caught up in the beauty of the gospel, in the beauty of God. It's like I forgot that I even know this woman. <laughs> I know this story. I see her fight the battles every day to live with hope and faith and love and persevere through every obstacle and challenge every day. And I, I hear how she reflects on what it means to walk with Jesus with suffering and limitations and through weakness. And I hear her faithfulness and her love for God through it all. And yet, I'm listening to this episode, I'm like, I'm just caught up in the beauty of Jesus all over again. And um, so I want to share this with you for two reasons. This episode, here here it is. I didn't put the URL up there, but you can Google any of some of those words and you'll find it. It's the Field Notes podcast by Arasha. Um, But here, I want to share this with you for two reasons. Uh, Number one, this is rich discipleship and formation material. This episode, it's about an hour long Like I said, I was just caught up myself in a vision of life with God that was fresh. Uh, My eyes were directed to Jesus, and and the message just rang true for me uh, in a way that's true to life, real life, gritty life, in a rare and beautiful way. Uh, But the second reason I want to share this with you is, especially if you've come in the past few years, um, this is one way to better understand and know me as your priest, uh, my wife, my family, you'll hear a bit of, uh, in the context of that, what, what we've been through the past several years, um, and to be known as we, as I seek and, and want to know you as prisoners, but also to, to be known and, and what our life is like, but also what our life as a family of Christ Church is like, because uh, many people here uh, went through that. It was a crisis in the church, and to see the way that the church came together in that moment five years ago... And not only there were people who were loving me very actively and practically as I was loving my wife in ICU in the hospital, but then there were people who were loving the people who were loving me, and it rippled out, and the whole congregation basically pastored each other while I was kind of out for some months in that regard. And um, Father Matt was carrying that on his own, and he had just joined staff, what, one month before the accident? He wasn't yet a priest. He'd been with us one month, and it's like, all right, baptism by fire, Father Matt. Um, but you guys all just pastored each other as well. It was beautiful to see what happened in the congregation. So anyway, it's a, it's a bit of um, a way to not only prepare for Lent, because a lot of the themes that you'll hear are Lenten themes. It's a great uh, segue into Lent now, and then also, if you're recent in the past few years to Christchurch, to know your church a bit, and uh, me and my family. Um, All right, we are in this series on becoming builders of unity, and I want to review what we've done so far. Look at at the the look back. Our first sermon was Christian unity as Jesus's prayer and our witness. Do you remember John 17, how we looked at that, verses 
20 and following, we looked at how Jesus has this last moment of prayer before he goes to the cross where he, it's an extensive intercession. And of all the things he prays for, right there at the heart of it, he's praying that the church may be one, that the, his followers, those who believe through the disciples and the generations down, that they will be one. And one of the reasons he prays for that oneness is for the witness that we will have to the world, that our oneness will be a witness to the gospel. And then the next week, we looked at unity and humility, unity and conflict after that. Last week, Father Matt preached on unity and friendship, and today, unity and love. So let's pause and pray before we step into our text for the day. Father, we thank you for your unfailing mercies. We come to you hungry for you, scared, hurt, guilty, feeling shame. We've come to you feeling joyful, content, grateful. We come from all kinds of different weeks this week, but we come together. And we come together because we have been won over by your mercies and your love. And we want to love you back with our worship. We want to be formed, shaped further. We want to mature in the faith through your word, through your table, and as we sing your praises. So come, Holy Spirit, we ask, and do that work in us that we can't do for ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Unity and love. All right, I have to admit, that might sound like lyrics to a John Lennon song or something from um, a hippie's commune in the 60s, like their logo, you know. Um, But it is so real and gritty and so much more than that, way grittier than that. Have you ever thought about the question, what does God desire? What does God desire from humans more than anything else? What What does he seek for us, from us? What's his greatest hope for humans? There was a man who was a professor of the Jewish scriptures who heard Jesus teaching, and he heard the way he taught and was impressed, and so he went up to Jesus, and he asked Jesus this very, question, this very question. Here's what he said. This is from our gospel reading, Mark 12. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Now, did you notice? He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And then he gives two commandments as a response. And that's because these cannot be separated. They are paired together. Love God, love others, and do it with your whole being. That's what Jesus says in his answer. These are not two distinct and like disconnected commands. He pairs them together to explain not only that our highest calling is to love God, but that the primary way we love God is by loving others. This is how you do that, in other words. It's why he can't just, it doesn't just answer with the greatest commandment, but this pairing that come as a package. The way we love God, the primary way, by loving others. Love God by loving others. Jesus asked Peter three times, you might remember this story, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
And every time, Peter says, yes, yes, you know that I do, yes. And after each of Peter's declarations of love, Jesus says what? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Care for people. Do you love me? Care for people. That, that is the pairing again three times over. Love for Jesus and care for people cannot be separated because you love God, therefore love others. And this is not in the abstract. Love the actual people around you. The actual people God's put in your life, in your workplace, in your home, in your small group, in your church, in your neighborhood. 1 John also touches on this. Our, this was our first reading today. 1 John chapter 4 says this, God is love. Now, that's about the most succinct definition of God we get in the New Testament. If you had to pick one from the Old Testament, you might be where God says at the burning bush, he says, I am. I am. God is love. If you wanted to distill it down to as few words as possible, there it is. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in them. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There's that commandment. There's exact, there's the pairing. This is a reference to the commandment that we just heard in Mark. God is not out there in our physical world in the sense that we can see, uh, hear, touch. But our neighbors are. Our neighbors are are out there. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is already among you. Jesus told people whose gaze, their kind of pious gaze, was fixed somewhere on the horizon. According to the New Testament, the love of God that is divorced from compassionate, selfless, helpful love of the actual people God has placed, around, placed us around. According to the New Testament, love of God that's divorced from the love of our neighbors, is hypocrisy. It's a strong word. To say, I love God, but then to not live it out and love the people around us is hypocrisy. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. Another strong word. This is from 1 John chapter 4. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Another text, those who hurry to the temple. This is that story that, where Jesus says, those who hurry to the temple and, and they make their offerings and sacrifices before reconciling themselves to their brothers and sisters, they're engaged in dead ritual. To truly love God, Jesus says, to truly love God is to reconcile with your brother or sister first and then go and make your offerings and sacrifices. Love God by loving others. Those who fail to recognize their brother and their sister in the wounded man at the side of the road. This is a, the Good Samaritan story. And in this story, in fact, this is, the, this is another example in, in John where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, it's love God, love your neighbor. And then the, the person says, well, how do we do that? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so he tells the story of the Good Samaritan to define neighbor. And so the Good Samaritan, who's the hero of the story, is an enemy of Israel. And he makes a hero out of the story, out of their enemy, to say, even your enemies are actually loving their neighbor 
how much more shall you? Because you know my love. Those who fail to love the least of these will be judged. This is from Matthew 25, where Jesus identifies himself very more close, more closely than any other passage with the actual love of humans. Those who demonstrate true acts of compassion for the incarcerated, the hungry, the poor, the sick, they are truly loving Jesus himself. That's what he says. As you love them, you're loving me. As you're not loving them, you're failing to love me. And there's judgment. So when you show caring, compassionate, practically helpful love to your neighbor, you're already experiencing a kind of taste of heaven. We see this even in the gospel reading. That's what Jesus said to the professor of the Jewish scriptures, the man who asked Jesus about, the, about God's deepest desire for humans. Look again at our gospel reading. This is verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. This is after Jesus gives his answer. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This declaration that this man is not far from the kingdom of God is kind of striking because this is all the encounter that this man has had with Jesus. There's not a conversion story here or anything like that. There's not a dramatic thing that happens except that he does recognize, he does recognize what Jesus is teaching about how love of God and love of others go together. The man who asked Jesus the question, he repeated what he heard, kind of like you know, he did that thing where he said, Jesus, what I hear you saying is, and then he repeated it, and it was just right on, verbatim, very accurate. And Jesus said, that's it. You got it. That's what I was saying. You got it. You're not far at all from the kingdom of God. If you understand your purpose as loving God by loving others, you are so close to my kingdom. What about people who are hard to love? People we don't want to love, people who we don't like, people who, with whom we have maybe even deep disagreements. There are any number of things that can challenge our ability to love. People we don't like, people we don't respect, against whom we have prejudices perhaps, or maybe even people with whom we actually have good cause to reject. We find these challenges in our interpersonal lives. We find them at home, in the workplace, in church or Communities, small communities, small groups, amongst our neighbors, literal neighbors. One cause of disunity that opens up, uh, kind of pops up sometimes in churches, not only now, but throughout really all of history, is deep disagreement on the, the, the theology and the teaching of the church. Maybe you've heard um, the story about the man who was stranded on a remote island for 20 years. Um, this guy, when rescuers finally got to him, they found him, and, and he was the only one on this island. And there were three huts there, and they were baffled why there were three huts. And so the rescuers come and say, what are, why are there three huts? He says, well, that one's my house. It's where I live. And he said, that one's my church. I'm a, deep, I'm a man of deep faith, Christian faith. But that one over there is the church I used to go to before it split. <laughs> and it captures something that is true as we look through, sadly true as we look through church history, um, how many different 
Splits, splits, splits there are in church history. Look at this. This is a, fam- a tree, a church family tree. And um, this is just scratches the surface of all the different branches. These actually represent uh, bra- branches that within each branch, you might say, has a twig. And each twig has a leaf because there are thousands of denominations, actually. Um, some even ca- have, have counted in the tens of thousands and it's hard to actually get an accurate, positive count because it, it's happening all over the world, even on a, a weekly basis, that there are these spinoffs. Some of the causes of those divisions are for real and substantive reasons. Many of them are petty and avoidable. From schism within a global church, global churches that we've seen throughout history, to the splintering of regional denominations, to, to church splits, individual local church splits, to, even down to individuals voting with their feet to leave a church. At every level, we see the challenges of living together as a unified body. Uh, we can go ahead and take that down. And um, just like every household or family, we have in our own lives, every household or family has different personalities and values and disagreements But it's held together. Families are held together by a shared story, by shared blood. And that's true of the church. We're held together by a shared story and the blood of Jesus by which we all come, the mercies of God that draw us in, that extends the forgiveness of sins and makes us one. So we're a church at Christ Church that holds together right here a lot of difference. If you've been here kind of long, you've encountered that. Unity, as Christchurch, does not mean uniformity. We don't all agree on everything as a church. Or we don't come from all the same backgrounds or the same generations. We are, as a church, we're red and we're blue and we're purple. We are young and we're old. We are single. We are married. We come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. We come from different church backgrounds. People have come into Christ Church from non-denominational kind of evangelical churches, from, from charismatic type of churches, from reformed churches, from more Catholic churches. That's the, all those backgrounds are here together. And it's sometimes a marvel that we, that we are one as a church. But that's a testament, again, to the gospel. That's what Jesus was saying in John 17. When churches, when, when the people of God are one, it's a testimony to the power of God that all of us have responded to, recognizing that we are not one of us righteous. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And what unites us is the fact that we are thirsty for God and we are desperate for his mercies. We need his intervention in our, in our lives. We We have places of sin, places of hurt, places where we need to be made whole, and we throw ourselves, we cast ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. And that's what holds us together. And as we, Christ Church, are centered on God's word, and as we are centered on Christ, and Christ is exalted, that's our primary goal. As we do that, Christ draws people to himself. 
That's what scripture says. As Christ is exalted, he draws people to himself. And then the basis of our togetherness and our unity is Jesus Christ at the center. We're called to love God and love each other, no matter what, while remaining a people of of God's word focused on Christ, one at the foot of the cross. Every week, we come and we gather around, kind of like a family does, it has a family meal. We do that. And it's a symbol and sign and even sacrament of the actual presence of Jesus with us in a mysterious way as we gather around our family meal at this table. We share this holy meal, and Christ is at the center of it. And that meal is like a family meal, glue for us as the body of Christ, each week remembering our dependence on him and our love for him. So let's bring this back from the historical kind of big picture and church history and all of that to the personal. How do I walk this out? How do you walk this out? Where the rubber meets the road, when we ask ourselves, how do I love the person maybe in my small group who says that outrageous thing or the person in my family who just rubs me the wrong way? How do I love that neighbor whose dog won't stop barking? How do I... We all have... These people that find, make it, how do we live in love with the people around us in the nitty gritty? And especially as we are a church, how do we disagree in love? Not only in the church, but anywhere. How do we disagree in love? So I'm going to go over a few ways that, um, that are answering that question. How do we do that? Number one, we follow the wisdom of this centuries old saying of the church. Now, it's been attributed to different people, and, and um, you might have seen it attributed to someone. There's actually a little bit of a uncertainty who said this first, but it does go back several centuries and carries so much wisdom. And it's this in essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, which is another way of saying love. So, what it's saying is that. To, to be the church unified, we have to agree on some things. There are some things that, we, that, that are essential to our unity. And we can't have unity without certain truths that we affirm together at the center. And our unity is around that truth. There are other convictions that are important, maybe even substantive. But not so, as essential, so essential as to break unity over. We can, dis- we can disagree. We can give each other freedom to disagree while being uh, together. But in all things, no matter what, even the essential things, no matter what, whether we agree on even the essentials or not, we're always called to charity. We're always called to love. And Jesus goes, you can't go any farther than saying love even your enemy. Not the person who's mostly like you, but not like you in this really annoying way. (laughs) Love even them. He's saying, love the person who's 100% against you. And love them like Jesus does. In a self-emptying, sacrificial kind of way. All right, number two. We thou others, not it them. This is language that comes from Martin Buber. He was a 20th century philosopher in a book called I and Thou. It's a really profound reflection of what it means to be human and see each other as human beings. And he makes this distinction 
between how we can see the world around us, how we can see everything around us, and, and especially each other. Do, we, do I see you as a thou in all the holiness that you carry as an image bearer, someone whom God has crafted in the womb and has named and loves? Do I treat you, no matter what you've done, what you think about anything, do I treat you as someone that I thou? Or do I it you? That's when I, I see you through a lens that maybe has some labels across the top. I've got you categorized. I've got you kind of sidelined. I don't take you seriously because I'm, I'm itting you. I don't see the complexity and the nuance and the beauty of who you are. I don't take into account the whole story of you, past, present, and future, and relate to God's vision of you. That's what it means to, to thou others. This is how we can disagree in love. I, I was in, when I was in seminary, um, I had a professor who was brilliant, um, and he wrote a bunch of books, and, um, but he just annoyed me. <laughs> he had mannerisms that annoyed me. He would sometimes go down trails that annoyed me. He, so it came time to the end of, of the class to give the feedback forms, you know, the course evaluation, and I was not charitable <laughs> with this guy. I itted this professor, and, um, and I look back on it actually with a, a, a feeling a bit ashamed, and like, I was so immature. I was so insecure. I think I needed to feel smart. I needed to feel like I could nitpick little things about this super smart guy, 10 times smarter than I am. And somehow I felt bigger by making him smaller. And I just really, I, I, I look back on that and I say, Professor, forgive me. He's with the Lord now. Um, but those are the examples, those little moments. It can be as simple as how, how do we treat someone that might not even be that close to us? Everyone we meet and encounter, we have a chance to it them or thou them. So number two, we thou others, not it them. Number three, we practice humility. Oh, let me tell you this, um, this old Hasidic story. There was a rabbi, he was a Hasidic Jew, and um, he asked his students what, uh, this question, what precise moment does night turn into day? You know, there's, that, there's that, this gentle process, it's night, and, and at some point it's day, but like, what's the moment? When is the precise moment that you can say, night becomes day? And so this rabbi gave his own answer to that. He said this, it's the moment when it's light enough to look into the face of any person and recognize that person as our brother or sister. Until we're able to do that, it's still night. I love that way of defining even the changing, the cycle of the days. Humility, I'm not going to say much about that one because we did a whole sermon on it, but if you weren't here, go catch up on it. You can go online, and it was a few weeks ago, and, um, and w- what's covered in that sermon covers everything I would comment on about it now. But for the sake of time, let's move on to the next one. Number four, we recognize where fear is in control. You know, First John, our first reading today, um, says perfect love casts out fear. So we want to ask ourselves, where is fear ruling in me? Where's fear in control? There's one sense, of course, in which fear and pain are important God-given signals to us that warn us about some kind of real and impending danger. So there's a place 
for that kind of fear. But when John writes that perfect love casts out fear, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of fear that comes from our need to control things, to be in control. The kind of fear that demonstrates a lack of trust in God, the kind of fear that puts up all kinds of self-protection so that we don't get hurt, the kind of fear that will not be vulnerable, the kind of fear that puts ourselves and our comfort first, the kind of fear that clutches on to things that God's asking us to relinquish. But maybe we're afraid if we relinquish this, whatever it is, and stop trying to worry and control with it, if we let go of it, we're afraid of what might happen. That kind of fear is what he's talking about. He's saying live open-handedly. Perfect love lives open-heartedly, open-handedly, vulnerable, woundable. That's what perfect love looks like. It doesn't live out of fear. That kind of love is not afraid of what will happen if we live vulnerably. Vulnerably. It's not afraid of what will happen in our world even if we just carry a little less anxiety about everything going on in our world. And we live with a little more trust in the God who's got it, who created it, who loves it, sustains it, holds all things together. Number five, we lose ourselves in the mystery of God's love for us. Now this one I put last, but this is actually the most important one. This, this is the heart of the matter. This, every, it all really flows out of this one. If we can start here, we lose ourselves in the mystery of God's love for us. Scripture assures us that our very existence is a manifestation of a love that precedes any love of our own, our, uh, the, the, the ways that we love others before all of that, behind our ability to love anybody, behind all of that, preceding that is the fact that we are loved. And it's going to be hopeless for all of us to have any shot of being able to love others if we cannot receive that first. Scripture abounds with this message. Here's one example. In this love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this is love, not that we first loved God, but that He loved us. First John again says, we love because He first loved us. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. It's from the Father's love through the Son that the Son loves the world. Abide in my love, he says. Another one, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. That command to love follows this declaration of, I chose you. I choose you. I love you, and my love for you comes first, and I'm going to pour my love out upon you. And as you are filled with my love, it's going to overflow, and you're going to love your neighbors. You're going to love the people around you. To be in the most human sense, Scripture tells us, means to be loved by God. However, when someone is constantly denied any human love, it's very difficult for them to believe in the love of God. Let me say that again, because some of this, this might be where you are. 
When someone is constantly denied human love, it's very difficult for them to believe in the love of God. So maybe for us, at a very personal level, it's saying, I need, God, I need to experience more of that love. Other of us might be the ones who God is saying to us, hey, that person that you are trying to love, who keeps putting up walls, who rejects, who sometimes even acts like they don't want your love, just keep loving them. Persist in love over and over, unconditional love, and maybe your love for that person that's so difficult to love, maybe your love for them will break through, open up a little crack, and they'll begin to experience what real love is like. And they will then be open to the love of God and the ability to love the people around them. So our call is to first and foremost receive the love of God for us and to let that then be a persistent love for others. The most important experience, the one most necessary for life, for healthy development and maturity as Christians, is feeling that one is loved or has been loved. It's the only true apprenticeship that we can have to obey this great command is to know that we are loved. For let love somehow infect us, get into us. Someone who is not loved, again, will never manage to love. I was with a friend this week, and um, a parishioner, and he was sharing some of uh, what he's been going through the past few weeks or so, and it was really beautiful. And, um, and it had to do with God's love. And he was, he was coming to this awareness and this sense of just absolute need for God, desperation for God, thirst for him. He was very aware, feeling very aware of his own vulnerabilities and weaknesses and just wanting to know the presence and the love of God and cast himself upon in, in, in such utter de- sense of dependence, daily, moment by moment kind of dependence. And he has experienced this, this kind of extraordinary, this, this, this thing that comes sometimes in our life for a season where he's just felt the love of God flowing, flooding him. I mean, he, every day, he said, he said every day he, he just cries because <laughs> he's so tender, his heart's so tender. It doesn't take but a feather <laughs> upon his heart to just make him come to tears at an understanding that Jesus, Jesus poured out his life for him, forgives him, loves him, accepts him unconditionally no matter what. And, he, and as he was telling me about this, it, it also kind of dropped for him this, this recognition that similar to what was in 1 John today that says, how, if you love me and you know my love for you, how can you hate your brother or sister? And it began to transform not only to this experience that he was having with the love of God, but this conviction to love the people that are difficult to love around him. This is the basic dynamic of the human life, not just the unity, not just Christian unity, but the basic dynamic of human life, to come humbly and dependent before God, receive his love and forgiveness. Let that love flow out as we love our neighbors. Let's ask the Lord to do that for all of us right now, to pour himself out in love and forgiveness. Father, 
We need you. We are desperate for you. We don't always know it. We don't always recognize it. Would you give us that kind of constant awareness of our, our dependence upon you? That we not, would not walk in our own strength or too confident that, oh, we've, we've got it now. But every day, open, open to a fresh revelation of your kindness, your mercy, your forgiveness. And I ask, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now, even, even now in this room. Would you pour your Spirit out upon us and speak to our hearts your great love for us? No matter what we've been through, what we've done, where we come from, may we know that we are absolutely loved by you and received. We thank you that you then invite us to be like you by loving others, that their hearts might also be cracked open to receive ultimately your love as we love them. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.